we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to today's episode of Afro Futures. This is Yusuf here, and I am with Jasmine Pierce. Jasmine is a New York-based comedian and writer for Saturday Night Live. She's also written for The Tonight Show uh, with uh, Jimmy Fallon, Comedy Central Crank Yankers, and Pop TV's Hot Date. Um, there are so many, many, many things that I'm happy to be getting a chance to speak to Jasmine about. But without further ado, here is Jasmine Pierce. Uh, Hello. <laughs> thank you so much for being on Afro Futures today. You know, I, as I kind of said to you in the virtual green room, as we're calling it, um, <laughs> I don't know if we're calling it or if I'm just calling it that, but um, <laughs> you, you, you are a comedian, you're a writer, you're an actor, um, but there's so much to you and, and and in many senses you're a feminist activist and i just i want people to get a chance to kind of know who jasmine is and and so if you will can, where are you from and and what is your like genesis story oh wow that's a big one um i'm from cincinnati originally uh i i grew up there and i went to an art school there which is kind of a major part of my genesis is i went to a performing arts school from fourth grade to 12th grade. So that is where all of this started. Um, I actually went to NYU for acting and hated it and uh, decided to quit acting while I was there and kind of um, lost my way a little bit because I had been doing performance and creative things for so long that uh, once I realized that I wasn't really connecting to acting in the way that I used to, I was not sure what I was gonna do anymore. Um, and basically got really depressed and started watching a lot of stand-up specials because they uh, made me less depressed. And then through watching that started being like, I don't know, I could do this. And I know a lot of people uh, say that, but uh, I did do it for a while. I did stand-up and that's where, that's kind of how I got into writing was through comedy. Like finding stand-up was kind of an easy thing for me originally because I was a performer at heart and I have been on stage so much that I was very comfortable being on stage. So um, being on stage for stand-up was like an easy natural next step. But I think in performing stand-up, I realized how much I really liked the writing elements of it. And then I started writing for websites online and stuff and then got TV jobs. That's the really like <laughs> short version of, of the basic genesis of how this happened. You know, uh, I, I'm not a, I fancy myself a comedian, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, maybe <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I feel like comedians are the best actors, writers, because like, if you can make someone laugh, you have to have an intimate understanding of people, right? Like what is the thing that makes people move? And before I move forward and like, get made fun of. Um, <laughs> I have expanders in my mouth, which are like a dental thing that <laughs> I sound lispy. So if 
you hear extra liquid or if you uh, have a weird sense, like, why does he sound like that? That is why. Is one of those palette expanders on the top? Yes, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Super crazy. Um, <laughs> my dentist was like, yeah, you know, you got some crowding in the front, so let's take care of that. And I was like, why did I not think about the fact that I have a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to hear me. Apparently did not do that much thinking when I said, yes, sign me up. But it's okay. <laughs> it's, all, it's all for the culture. Um, at yes, least I'll have a nice time. Um, but comedians are... You know, and especially like in stand up, because like it's, I would presume, quite different than writing. So, what, what for you is the difference between like being a stand up comedian and in a room? And how is that different than, um, you know, writing for like Saturday Night Live or like writing improvisational types of, uh, of works? Yeah, I mean, um, it's really different for a number of reasons. I mean, it's literally different because in one version, you're standing alone on a stage talking and everyone else has to listen to you. And in another one, you're pitching um, jokes while everyone else is trying to pitch jokes and you're just trying to keep up or, you know, impress the room or make everyone else laugh. But um, it's a completely different audience. You know, when you go to stand up, if you're lucky and you have a good audience, these are just people that want to be here and want to laugh whereas if you're pitching in a room and writing a tv show your audience is like sometimes some of the greatest comedic minds in the world and trying to make them laugh is a lot harder um but i think one of the biggest differences especially for me is like it's a you're when you're doing stand-up, you're speaking your own voice. You can say whatever you want. You can say what you planned. You can say what you didn't plan. You have full control of the situation and you're speaking as you or some version of you, depending on how real your stand-up is and if you do a character or something. Um, but when you're writing for television, you have to incorporate lots of other people's voices, a lot of other people's perspectives. You have to write through a different voice. Like when I was writing for Jimmy Fallon, writing sketches for him is a lot different than writing sketches for me. I can say a lot of things that he can't say. Obviously that's why Seth has that bit joke Seth can't tell because there's so many things that like you wanna say but can't sit, filter through a certain lens. So um, it's it's trickier, it's, it's definitely very different. Um, yeah. And, and you know, I, I was thinking about that, right? Because I would imagine SNL will be very different than writing for Jimmy Fallon. And, and you know, and, and obviously those are all very different than stand-up comedy. But one of the things that I think, if I'm not mistaken, you were, you were able to kind of engage in because comedy is also, you know, satirical or can be satirical. Mm -hmm. um, and very much helps to kind of um, reflect on society broadly, but but particularly reflect on politics. And and you know we had, in some senses, the biggest like I don't even know what to call the last four years like a big hoax or like the world <laughs> reality TV show that none of us wanted to be part of, but somehow were casted in. Um, and so the political um, comedy, I think, is is both important because it allows us to kind of um, have that catharsis where we can kind of release and talk and really address issues that are controversial in a more comfortable way. And in some respects, SNL for the last several years of the, of the Trump years anyway, has been really important to kind of helping us get through that. 
but you also like got a chance because of your shift from being a stand-up comic um, to writing on on the Tonight Show, interview Hillary Clinton, and and connect with people that you otherwise may not have gotten to connect to. And so, as a person who is self-described as a feminist, what was that like, right? To, to kind of experience Hillary Clinton, and how has your how has your um, perspective of your craft shifted as you continued to go different modalities? Um, that's a good question. Uh, with Hillary Clinton, it was a very just like overwhelming experience at the time that it happened. We had only been there for a couple months. Uh, me and my, my writing partner, Taryn, uh, we had just started and we were all just like pitching with our executive producer and everyone had pitched bits for Hillary yet, but no one was really like happy. We, I don't think we really knew what we wanted. And at the time, um, Hillary had been so important to women and not, you know, not necessarily important enough to black people. Um, but part of me was very excited that she was there. Part of me was like a little conflicted, but it was also like, I do think regardless that she made a huge impact on something and really exposed uh, what is wrong with the patriarchy in America that we would choose Trump over literally anyone. And I think at the time it was so devastating for Hillary to lose, not just because a woman lost, but mostly because a Trump won. <laughs> and I think at the time I just felt like so overwhelmed with still emotion about it. This was almost a year after the after the election and I hadn't had a catharsis. I don't think a lot of people had. And I think the bit we did with Hillary, we did thank you notes to her and it was very sincere, which, um, you know, it had a lot of jokes in it, but it felt very sincere and was very overwhelming, but it felt like a big cathartic moment, at least for me. <laughs> I mean, we were on stage, so it was a little different, but, um, I think that's what we were going for. And that did feel that did feel like a really natural transition from what I was writing before I got the Tonight Show to what I can write on air. Um, not everything felt that way. And definitely my perspective of my voice has changed. Like, I think this is a really interesting time to have this conversation because when I started writing, um, online. I was writing for a satirical women's magazine, kind of like The Onion, but for Cosmo called Reductress. And it was like very easy for me because it was basically my experiences as a woman and I could just translate my rage through humor and then write it out almost directly. And everyone was like, oh my God, I relate to this so much. Like, oh my God, this is such a big thing. Um, but you know, switching, transforming that into what can be done at the Tonight Show. We did actually have a few bits that um, I was proud of that we got through. We had one with Jessica Chastain too. But once that was happening, it started being like, what else do I want to talk about? Like I built my career on, you're right, being a feminist. I did what I could writing articles about Black things on Reductress, but it's not even easy to translate that always through that lens. Um, and I think it got to a point at the Tonight Show where I was also like having a bit of a crisis of like, 
am I writing things that are important? Is it important for me to write things that are important? Because at the end of the day, it's not my job to come here to just write political comedy. It's not my job to push my voice through, especially at The Tonight Show. It's not necessarily my job to push my individual voice through all the time, like for every single bit that we do. Some of the bits are just celebrities shaking their ass and you just write that, you know, it's like there's a lot of pressure put on, I'd say, like late night on young comedians, on a lot of people now to be political, to use your voice. And in some ways that can really build up your voice. Like feminism, when I was coming up, was very trendy. You know, it was like really in, it was the in thing. Now Black Lives Matter is quote unquote very trendy. And I'm not saying that it should be, but that is where we're at. Um, Social movements come as trends. When more Asian Americans are getting beat up in the street or it's at least becoming more visible, then it becomes very trendy for everyone to post about Asian things. So now I am coming to a crossroads about maybe not a crossroads, just a a moment of discovery about what is my responsibility toward um, my community. Like, it's not always easy to get political stuff through SNL. It's actually really hard, especially when we have such a political season like this one was, where we're talking a lot about politics. You have to make sure you have like a really important point to make. It can't be like when I was writing at Reductress, it would be like, a, you know, I would a random little thing would happen to me and I would be like, oh, I can make that into a huge um, article and it would become something very funny. But at SNL, it's like, you wanna make sure that what you're saying, if you're going to say something that what you're saying is important or matters, but it's also like, what is our, I don't know what our responsibility is toward helping everyone in comedy. I think that's like a discussion a lot of people are having or have had for years. I I think that is like an important insight to your world. Um, And especially, um, well, let me me take this from a few ways first, right? Um, Now, I was at a uh, a doctor's office. I won't say the kind of doctor, that way I don't um, expose the (laughs) type of uh, the folks there, just respecting their privacy mm-hmm. where one of the practitioners um who w- my wife was being serviced there i was being serviced there, my mom etc um she's a lesbian woman really nice person um and we were having a conversation about um about you know experiences and difference difference in experience and i was talking to her about you know the stress that my mom has had as a black woman, right? And 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 was saying like as a black woman, you know, there's been a lot of trauma and a lot of. And my mom was born in 1945, so she's like she's a black woman who grew up, you know, in from 1945. You know, like she's 70, 75 years old. So so she's seen and experienced a lot. Um, and. In many senses, things have moved forward, but in some senses, things haven't, right? And so in commenting to this practitioner, she said, oh, it's not because she's a, a Black woman, it's because she's a woman. I'm like, no, there's a difference between Black women's experiences and like white women's experience. And there was a lot of kind of conflict, you know, there was, she's like, you know, as a feminist, like, we don't make a distinction. I'm like, no, that may be rhetorically the case, but like, there is a big difference, right? You know, like Black women are dying uh, at That's why we, 
Yeah, that's why we need the term intersectional feminism because it wasn't working that way. And, 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 and I'm happy you, you raised that because I think as we think about your point about like trends from like, you know, feminism trending to Black Lives Matter trending, Black Lives Matter situates itself in an intersectional feminist lens and a Black feminist framework. And I, I'm just curious to hear, like, how have you interrogated or have you like had to interrogate the kind of both of those strains of feminism and kind of like how how have they shown up? Because, you know, there was this I, I, Hulu did an amazing, amazing. And I'm not going to lie. I cried like probably five times. Um, an amazing um, uh, series on Hillary Clinton that mm -hmm. was really, really good. And just like as a. I kind of feel like she's really been treated unfairly for most of her career, totally. definitely without a doubt. Um, and, and as I watched it, at the same time, Hulu had uh, Miss America, right? Which mm -hmm. was uh, uh, about Phyllis, Phyllis Flatley, or I forgot her, her last name, but Phyllis. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't just about Phyllis, right? It was about the struggle between Black lesbians. Um, it was, you know, it was a lot of really important discussion about the feminist movement, um, the successes, the challenges, the pitfalls, and really the shifts. And so as I kind of, as a heterosexual male, uh, observing from the outside, um, I find this a really important conversation to have. And I just, I was curious to get your thoughts as to how, how to the extent um, do you navigate this sense of like wanting to capture this voice but also, as you said earlier, feeling like it really isn't like my necessarily necessarily my job to do this, or like my job is to make people laugh. And to the extent that I can help tell stories in ways that illuminate the experiences of these communities, I'm down for it. But what responsibility do you feel people place on you to do that? Yeah, I mean, as an SNL writer in general, I think everyone knows a ton of responsibility is put on us, a ton of like judgment is put on us for what we write and don't write. And it can be, sometimes I agree with some of the opinions online and sometimes I don't. Um, I think as far as like, you know, feminism and intersectionality, I think that that's a discussion that has grown for me over time because when I started, I didn't think about the ways in which feminism was not inclusive. I was very much pro-Black and pro-woman, but at the time I was writing for a feminist website. So a lot of my writing focus went to feminism. And because I felt a part of it, I didn't think as much about the ways in which feminism was exclusionary toward my race. And also another conflict that I personally have a lot is that I am biracial, I'm black and white. So um, I feel, if anything, a lot more pressure to keep reminding people that I'm black too, I care about this stuff. Like I just because I'm a feminist, like even with the Hillary stuff, I still feel a little bit of guilt because I know that the black community doesn't always support Hillary. And, and what did that mean at the time for me to be coming out as a black woman thanking her? Um, even though I meant everything that I said, it's not that I take back anything that I said, but it is something I think about now. And I think as the discussions have opened up more and 
honestly, I think it took a lot of feminist discussions to get us to a point where we could talk about intersectional feminism, but that's always been true. Like, you know, it always takes a long time for the, the main point to start becoming more complicated and for us to be able to have more um, nuanced discussions about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think definitely as I've progressed through my career, it's the idea of what am I responsible for comes up a lot. Because when I started this, my whole thing was like, I'm loud, I'm going to say whatever I want. And that is still true to some degree, but it's also not true because I can't say whatever I want. I could lose my job. Um, I, you know, like there are times when you know, people come on the shows that I'm on from, you know, at, at Fallon, at SNL, where people, other people don't agree with them being there. And um, it's like, what's our responsibility individually? I don't choose who comes on the show. You know, like, I think a lot of people put a lot of responsibility on us, especially cast, but the writers too, on like, are you gonna, are you guys gonna storm out? Are you gonna make a fuss? Are you gonna do this? And it's like, Sometimes I feel like I want to do that depending on who it is. And sometimes I feel that I, I have a career too, <laughs> you know, like I, people don't always think about the fact that I have other plans beyond SNL at some point, you know, like I'm not always going to be here and I have other projects that I'm working on and things behind the scenes that just take more time. And I think that the main difference with this kind of, stuff for me has been that my voice used to be very immediate. I would think of something and I would tweet it immediately. I would write an article and it would be out in the next couple of days. Like everything that, you know, with SNL, that's still sometimes true. Sometimes we write a sketch and it's out in a couple of days, but sometimes, sometimes we're working on things for months and sometimes I'm working on larger projects behind the scenes. And I feel like, well, this is feminist. This is intersectional. This is about um, my experience as a biracial woman, like I'm, I am working on these things, but they're behind the scenes and for something else and not necessarily for the one job that people know about. So um, it definitely has become more complicated to me to be like, do, I don't feel necessarily that we owe the audience anything but laughs. Um, and that is that can be controversial, but you also like you know with all the PC culture and and cancel culture and those kinds of discussions, I hear a lot of shitty guys raging against cancel culture. I also hear a lot of genius comedians that I fully agree with talking about why cancel culture is not effective, you know. And it's like it's hard to do that balance of like I think that some of cancel culture is necessary. I do think some people need to be taken out. I think the problem with cancel culture is that it's uncontrollable and the the wrath of people can be used on anything at this point. And it's just, it's realistically, it doesn't, it's not always as effective as it should be. Um, and we're not always getting the right people. And there's plenty of people that should be canceled that haven't been. Um, but anyway, my point is all of these, there's so many more factors now. And with the way that the internet works and the the depth we've gotten into with the internet like a long time ago it was like we were all posting every move on Facebook but it was mostly like what we were doing and where we were going and who we were seeing and now we're posting truly every thought having fight everyone's having a fight about everything everyone has an opinion so it's like we can't really 
live our lives based on what Twitter wants or based on, you know, just what we think the audience wants. We have to also go by what we want to do. And there are plenty of times where I'm just writing a sketch where Chloe wants to say, oh, I, my tit fell out. And it's just like silly, goofy stuff. And, and you know, I've had, to, I've had weeks where like we were writing a sketch that I didn't feel like had a point or a voice that I think is really funny. And I have struggled with like, is this okay? Am I wasting, you know, my energy? Am I wasting my time? I'd rather be talking about important things, but we are comedy writers at the end of the day. We're putting on a comedy show and that is what has to be most important. And so, yeah, there is a lot of like also judgment on you guys have this platform. Why don't you use it this way? And sometimes it just, things get weird during the week. Sometimes we mean to use our platform better, I think, than we end up using it because it's a chaotic environment. Um, and sometimes individually, we would like to use our platform in ways that we as a production and as an institution actually can't. And, you know, we have advertisers at the end of the day and we have bosses and we have other people that we have to report to. It's not just you know, a live sketch show that we're doing in the basement of UCB in New York City. Like we have to, we have people to answer to. And sometimes also your sketch gets cut. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes no, it just I, gets I, cut and, <laughs> and then you can't say what you wanted to say. It, it, it's the reality of, of having to play to multiple constituencies, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's come with costs and it comes with costs like, you know, uh, and, and those costs can look very different. You know, it could be, um, a disgruntled person and it could be someone who took a joke offensively and is in litigation and mm -hmm. and i know that we've experienced some of those things and we won't talk to that because i think it's <laughs> there's more to talk to than than those than, than those things but you know you um you put me on a particular strain of thinking with what you said particularly as you raised kind of cancel culture um and i'm a large consumer of media I, I like read and listen to and watch news and like almost all day if my wife is completely tired of me like she's like i'm not going to go into the living room um because you're just going to be watching msnbc um <laughs> and and i'm okay with that um well i'm not okay with her not coming into the living room but i'm okay with watching <laughs> yeah don't um, get in trouble <laughs> I, lo I love her in the living room <laughs> Hashtag, i love my wife um, and for full disclosure, I work at Facebook, so um, conversations and the platform itself, are, I think, uh, you know, is is, a, is an important place to be able to have those discussions. But I think I think you're right um, in the sense of um, like the dynamics of where our, our culture has gone. And I also worked at the ACLU of New York, so. You know, spent some time doing a lot of First Amendment type of work, um, but I, I did my First Amendment work rooted in a racial justice framework, um, sectional racial justice framework to be specific. And I'm, you know, for since I was in middle school, I used to watch a show on ABC called Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher, mm -hmm. and I remember when the show was canceled, and I remembered when I went to HBO. I wasn't able to afford HBO then, so I didn't watch it. Um, <laughs> but, but I did watch, and I have been watching for many, many, many years, real time with Bill Maher. And, you know, it's it's been a very difficult ride with Bill. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, because um, I am Muslim and Black, 
And I just, I listen to the things that he says about Muslims and Islam, and like it's so rooted in like, for someone who's a self-avowed progressive and liberal, like your perspective is not rooted in the like realities of like how the the tradition is practiced or the community like you he does a really bad job and then i get he's like anti-religion and he's atheist but it's actually more it kind of feels like it's islamophobic for me personally mm -hmm. um and this week um as has been the last several weeks there's been this sense of like a kind of paternalistic lecturing of 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 movement people about what we ought to and what, ought, and what we ought not to be doing um, and taking particular focus on defund the police and cancel culture. And it, did, it just doesn't sit well with me. I, 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 I have continuously been very concerned and I mean, just frankly, just stop watching the show just because I'm like, I'm just not gonna support the show. I can't do it. Um, and I, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I mean, I, I've enjoyed many years. He has good guests on a lot. Yeah, exactly. And, and they have good conversations. And so it's, it is frustrating because I've had the same thing where like, I'll watch the show for a while. And then he says one thing and I'm like, all right, I guess I just have to stop. I just can't, <laughs> can't do it. Um, but increasingly, especially it's like, there are these, there's this sense of like these aggrieved white people who are feeling a sense of like um, uh, being attacked because you know, God forbid people want to hold you accountable for like, you know, whiteness, which is a thing, by the way, it is a real thing. White supremacy is a real thing. And we are all, myself included, acculturated to white heteronormative Christian male dominance as the kind of pinnacle of society. And everything is oriented towards that. And I listen to Bill and I'm like, dude, like, yeah, you can say what you want, but that doesn't mean that people can't boycott you, right? Like that, that yeah. you, like, yes, the first amendment allows you to say what you want. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. And yes, I believe as a former ACLU staffer that you have the right to say that. That doesn't mean that I also don't have the right to do the other things in the first amendment, which is I've like- I've had this fight with so many people. Like the first amendment does not relieve you of any repercussions from your actions. It just means that you can say it and we can hate you for it. Like you, that is, it doesn't mean that you can just say whatever you want and you can get a free pass. And we can mobilize and we can organize and we can boycott and we can cancel you, right? Mm -hmm. Cause that's how we're using our speech, right? That's how we're using our action. Um, and I, and I, what makes it even more problematized for me is because it's rooted in in some respects, the kind of like nostalgia for, it, it feels very much like Martin Luther King's letter to a Birmingham jail, right? Where like, mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, King is in, is, is in prison in Birmingham for those who may not have context, we want to contextualize it for folks. Mm -hmm. he, he's in a jail in Birmingham, a, a jail, jail in Birmingham. Um, and, you know, there are folks who are saying, you know, uh, many, folks who are telling him like, we believe in your cause. We don't believe in the way that you're approaching your cause, right? So like, you have to do it like this, right? Like, the way that we want it to be. The way that we want you to organize. And King eloquently captured this, right? He talks about like freedom on someone else's timeline. Like mm -hmm. you don't get to dictate the terms of my liberation. Like 
that's not how this works. Yeah, like, it was always like, if you wait a little bit longer, like it just takes a long time. Racism it takes a long time. So we have to, yeah, it was always just excuse after excuse. And we don't have to sit around letting you dictate when we get to be free. That's the point. That is the <laughs> we, point. We actually gave you that chance for hundreds of years already and you didn't take it. So it's our turn now. <laughs> it's our turn. And so as I, as I, as I think about Bill as a comedian, um, and I think about Bill as a writer and as a showman. And I think about what I what I see is his decline, perhaps. Um, it's situated in this sense of like, I'm going to be erased. I'm not going to exist. And in one sense, I can I can appreciate that and have some empathy. In another sense, I don't need you to tell me to be paternalistic. And in fact, I think you actually need to do a lot of uh, self-introspection into like, almost every person that he has on the show that talks about this are white people, right? Like, where are the people of color who are saying, no, and in fact, when they do that, he cuts them off and goes to another conversation. Mm -hmm. I just want to get your thoughts on, on that. And, and like, how do we like, how do we deal with the Bill Mars of the world who are like, your timeline for freedom ought to look like this, right? Like, as King would say, you know, the biggest, the biggest problem isn't a Ku Klux Klaner or, uh, the, 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 the white citizens council member, it's the white moderate, right? And mm -hmm. in this context, the white progressive uh, who dictate the timeline of our freedom. Um, and, and I just, it, it, as you spoke about cancel culture, it kind of put me on that strain. So I just would be interested in hearing your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, that any time that there's an attempt to delay or change the timeline, that it's always an excuse. They're not genuinely meaning we'll give you the freedom in a few years. It's a delay to see what they can do to prevent it from happening altogether. I think it's always going to be difficult when we are trying to get freedoms from a person whose oppression of us keeps them in a better place. Like, no one is going to sacrifice their own comfort. I mean, when we talk about black versus white and I talk about white people, you know, there are white people in my family. The, some of the closest people that have uh, ever been to me, the people that have raised me, some of them were white. And so it, it does become a difficult conversation of like, how can you, I, I don't have, like, I don't have conversations about this with my white family very often. So, you know, like this is, um, it's something that even within the white people in my community, it's not always easy for me to breach the, broach the subject because I don't think that they're going to want to have this discussion. I don't think that they're going to want to think about any of this stuff. As far as cancel culture and all of that, I don't always know that that's the right path. It's, it doesn't allow for nuanced discussion most of the time. Um, I think that if I think true predators that are in that are causing immediate danger to people should be canceled. Um, and I think that people that are I think Bill Maher, I wish that he would go on other people's shows more often, go on your show, go on someone else's show where he doesn't get to dictate the conversation, because I think that's one of the, the most difficult things for him is he is always in charge most of the time um, in, in what's being said to some degree. And that's always true. Like, you know, even at my job, at any of the jobs I've had, um, my my highest up superiors are still white men and even the ones around them are often white men or white people so you still have to filter everything through them so I don't know what the answer is 
as far as how we get through to people that are a part of the machine passively. Mm. You know, like I know and love a lot of white people that are part of the machine passively. And I know a lot of them that are actively doing things that are learning, that are relearning, that are, um, you know, having nuanced discussions with me that are like really taking in what I say and, and, uh, and I see it in their actions. And I see how I have white friends that have companies right now and I see them um, refusing white applicants to jobs because they know they're working on projects for people of color and they want to make sure that their company represents that. And, but the reality is at the end of the day, they're still in charge of the company. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it is not an easy thing. I think for me personally, you know, in media and in this environment, I do my best to try to uplift and empower other women of color, other women, um, yet especially younger women of color that are uncertain about what they're doing and are scared. I have a lot of like interns that when you when you intern at the Tonight Show, um, you get to pick like a person at the job that you have like a sit down talk with near the end of your your time there and a lot of times any of the women of color interns that wanted to be writers would choose me because there's not always a, a lot of options. And so <laughs> I've gotten to sit down with a lot of them. And I think the biggest way that I try to help is by making sure that there's a lot more coming up beneath me that A, will help me out because a lot of these, especially the interns, like they don't always end up being writers. A lot of them end up being producers. A lot of them will end up being my bosses one day. Um, you know, I try to empower them, not just for me, but for the, I want there to be tons of women of color around me. I want them to be a lot of people of color around me. I want them to be, I want there to be LGBT people of color around me. I want lots of people of color around me and white people can come too. Um, but I, I try to make sure that in the environments that I'm in, that I am pulling these people up with me. I try to encourage young women who I see potential in because that's what happened for me when I was first starting. There were a couple women and some white women who um, reached out to me, who told me I was doing a good job when I had no idea because comedy is so you have you you can't tell except for from the laughs. But even within that, you can get laughs in one place and not get laughs in another. And at the beginning, you just have no idea if you're doing well or not. And so I think that any any way that we can foster that. Um, and and bond with each other and give each other jobs like I basically a lot of times when I have women of color that are conflicted about a job decision I always just tell them like what would a white man do in this situation that's what you need to do because a white man would go negotiate his salary right now because you're not being paid enough a white man would like walk into a room and confidently be like I've done this this and this I feel that I should get this amount of money and if they didn't get it they would leave and go somewhere else you know like it's not always that simple and that easy and that clear cut, but I do think that there, there is a degree to which we need to be allowed to behave like white men, you know, and I, I don't mean that we should try to idolize them and behave, you know, be like them, but we need to have enough freedom and enough space, enough of us that even, even that we can dislike each other. You know what I mean? Like I am mostly, this is the, I think SNL is maybe one of the most diverse jobs I've had. And there's, 
four black writers on the writing staff from this past season and I'm one of them and even within that it's like you don't we want to be all supportive of each other you know there's not enough of us to have too much conflict and if we do then we are just you know making it less of a black show if we're like constantly competing against each other you know I think that all of these discussions have been on my mind a lot lately, especially during COVID when I've had more time to think about it. And especially after last summer and like, I don't know if I'm still on the same subject that you started me on, but I think responsibility wise, it's hard. You know what I actually wanted to bring up um, about the way that I, you know, we connected online as I saw a video of you speaking very eloquently and was like, oh my God, this guy's great. Is he running for office? And I went to your page and the last thing you had posted was you guys stop, I'm not running for office. It was like <laughs> um, really uh, interesting to see that. And you gave a really good explanation about it being about your family and why that's important to you. And it's like, and with you working at Facebook, which I didn't know until now, I think that's really interesting. I think, you know, on a personal level, what is any of our responsibility? You know, like you would be a great politician and I would vote for you if you ran in anywhere where I could vote, you know what I mean? But it's not your responsibility to change the world in the way that I want you to or anyone else wants you to. You're still going about and having discussions like this and bringing in black people and spreading the word and doing all that. And all of that can be just as important. You know, grassroots campaigns can be just as important or more important than big, huge, you know, donor political nonsense campaigns. And if you don't want to get caught up in that and in what being a politician, in the ways in which being a politician can actually take away a lot of your freedoms and your and, and uh, you know, change what your perspective is on what you want to be doing and can actually inhibit you from doing a lot of the things that you want to do. Like, I, I think that the discussion of individual responsibility has become something that comes to my mind a lot. I, I talk a lot about care shaming. I think there's a lot online of people being like, oh, you don't care about pet adoption. Like you're a terrible person. You don't care about this, this, and this. I think obviously there's some major issues that I do think everyone should care about, but there's a lot of like other things, even with it's like the environment, for example, you know, when people are like, you don't recycle. It's like, I personally don't think any individual person's recycling is going to change anything about the environment. Corporations are killing the environment and they're trying to put individual responsibility on us so that we feel bad instead of them actually having to do anything and being held accountable. But other people would be like, oh, you didn't recycle that bottle. Like, how could you, or you don't, you don't care about this issue, this issue. I think that that really ruins a lot of these discussions because then it puts like a hateful energy in and it makes me spitefully not want to care about an issue that you care about because you're trying to make me care about certain things. I think everyone should have some things that they care about, but what we care about and who we care about, I don't think it should be forced. I think you can judge other people based on what they care about. I think you don't have to be friends with someone if they don't care about the issues that you care about. But I think the time that we spend being like, you have to care about this, you have to care about this, um, wastes valuable time that we could be having more important discussions about what they, what you actually care about. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a perfect way to kind of transition us towards the end because as I, um, I want to just address a few things you said. Um, there was a lot, it was rich, it was really rich. And I, I, <laughs> Sorry, I like every time I was thinking of something, something else would come up. <laughs> you know, 
that's the story of my life actually so <laughs> on the same wave in that sense and um a, a, I, I think a good interviewer lets the person who's being interviewed speak <laughs> so <laughs> that's the point um so totally totally good that you said what you said um before we close i'll just address two things and then maybe have a final question um or a final closing comment um i you're right i like I knew my whole life that I was going to be president. Like I just knew it. <laughs> president, and I'm, and then I had a baby girl, and I um, got to the point where like I had gone viral nationally, almost like a year ago to the day, uh, in a few days. Oh. Um, Congratulations! I <laughs> uh, went crazy viral. Ava DuVernay, which if you're inviting people to come to the show, Bill, please come. We'll happily welcome you. But like, if you know Ava, who shared my video, um, you know, let her know I'm looking to have. Her. <laughs> if uh, I run into her, I'll let her know. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to run for office, and I got a national platform and an ability, and people like will donate and all these other things, and. At that moment, I was like, you know what? I this is the time, and I would want to do it, and it's the moment to do it. Um, but it's not because I have a two-year-old, and she is my world. Like she is my number one job. And as a father of of a, of a black girl who's also a South Asian girl, because my wife is from Bangladesh, um, it's my job to pour into her, mm -hmm. uh, and anything that will potentially implicate that, I just don't have time for it. And there are other ways to have conversations and to advance the work beyond just political elected office. And it was very tough for me, but it actually really wasn't very tough. It was it was quite easy because- Yeah, it seems like you knew exactly what you wanted. <laughs> exactly, I, I wanted to be a dad more than I wanted to be anything else. And you and, don't know what, A, what you, she's not gonna be a baby forever. There's yeah. plenty of time and B, you might be raising the next president, <laughs> you know, a child raised by you would be almost more powerful than you might be yourself. Kamala <laughs> Harris being black and South Asian as I expressed, yeah. it's like, you know, there's a, a North star in some senses, not agreeing with all the politics, but yeah, <laughs> honestly does matter. And, 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 and so I think it's to imagine what can be possible. It's, it's important to see that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as I kind of um, asked my last question for you, I'm I'm stuck with a lot of thoughts, right? One thought is the need to like affirm this sense of cancel culture, but also like, you know, how do we how do we allow people to be like, how do we not facilitate for social death, right? The need to hold people accountable, like for instance, uh, Derek Chauvin got 22 and a half years uh, in uh, sentence, and as a aspiring abolitionist um and i'll say my brother was killed in front of my building and i had a, brothers and nephews and siblings that were inflicted grave harm from police violence and police terror during new york city's stop and frisk and throughout the 80s 90s 2000s right mm -hmm. um i i i struggle with saying yes in this case we should do more prison right so as we think about like what is our um, view on these issues? Like, how do we make sure we center, like, not continuously repeating the systems of destruction that have impacted us? And I think for me, that means, like, do we advocate for 22 and a half years for prison for people, irrespective of the crime that they've committed? Or do we think about 
what does it mean to like bring people back into communities? What does restorative justice look like, right? Do we like excommunicate people from society or do we think about different, like is that, do we, do we replicate these white supremacist structures or do we dismantle them? And does dismantling them mean something different? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I'm, I'm just, because because we connected on on some of those issues and i hope that we continue to stay in touch and keep connected i just would love to hear your closing thoughts on like where do we go from here both in the like the cancel culture stuff the defund the abolitionist work like where, where is the direction as the show called entitled afro futures what does that future look like because for me it doesn't look like replicating those same systems it looks like imagining and actually advocating and implementing something radically different. I mean, in a really broad sense, I think that, yes, we have to, we cannot work within the system. That is, that is the point of what you're talking about with Martin Luther King even is like, we can't work with a system that has been harming us. We have to figure out how to rebuild the system, but how do we rebuild a system without tearing it down and destroying everything first? Because by destroying the system of patriarchy and, and all of these systems that we hate um, of, of white supremacy and everything, that is what the country is built on. It literally is built on that. So if you think about that in a literal sense, if we tear that down, we could destroy the country. And that would lead to thousands and thousands and thousands or millions potentially of deaths, which we've already been through enough of in the last year. And mostly it would probably firstly impact communities of color. Like, so it is a hard discussion of like, we could, you know, storm the Capitol building or something, but I just don't <laughs> think like, <laughs> I don't think I it's gonna made be it very far. Like, <laughs> I think they might have more security up if it was a bunch of black people coming in. But um, yeah, I think that ultimately we do have to completely rethink the way that we're looking at things. You know, I've talked a lot about why I think education is the most important issue on this. And I'm really glad that this critical race theory you know, issue is coming up, even though it's not always going the way that we want to everywhere. I think it's an important discussion to have because part of the reason it's so hard to get through to people on these issues is because we've never talked about it in any complicated way. Even if, even in the past and all, you know, you know, Malcolm and Martin, like they were getting just to the basics, <laughs> you know, they were, they were only able to cover like the, the foundational, like there is still racism. There are signs that say racist things. Can we not have that? Like, that's just the very beginning, but you know, it's been this battle. And I think a lot of times it feels like we haven't made any progress, but we weren't having these discussions back then, even with, with police violence, like there's been police violence this whole time. And, you know, people are just thinking that it started in 2016. And if that's the case, let them think that let's, they can think it's just happening now. If, if we have to go there and we will start there and being like, okay, now that you at least see it, now we can start talking about like defunding the police is a concept that I don't think we could have introduced even four years ago, you know, even five years. I think people were introducing it, but it was like not going to catch mainstream. It wasn't going to be a meme, you know, like these ideas are still generally fresh as a public. So we need to, I think, make it more accessible and more understandable. I mean, defund the police has, has its um 
challenges in a similar way I think feminism did with like the name choosing was maybe not the best way to market these ideas because people that don't want to think about this complicated think defund and they think take away all the money from the police which is ideal but um and you know it's not literally what it means and you know the same thing happened with feminism where people are like so you're saying that women are better than men it's like that was not the point um but here we are and i do think that like there's no way to ask the system please can please sir can we have another like it you know even reparations is uh, something that i firmly believe in but it's still asking you know the white run government please can you just give us some money <laughs> like can you just help us out with how much you've already set us back and we can't get that so i do think that new ideas and larger scope changes have to be made and we have to be able to start thinking about things in a completely new way because as you said everything is focused on a white male christian you know uh heteronormative uh, superiority lens. And until we, if we keep looking through that lens to find the problems or the solutions, I mean, if we keep looking through that to find the solutions, we're never going to find them. There, those solutions are not in there. They're not through that lens. That lens filters out those solutions. That's the point of it. If you're looking at it through their eyes, that's, they designed it so that there are all kinds of tricky manipulative ways that we, you can never think of a way to solve it because we already have this established. You can't ruin this. Um, but you're right. I think that, I don't think that we are going to find the solution on this podcast. I don't think any one person at this moment has an answer. I think we need new leaders with big ideas. And I think that slowly we are starting to get that. It's just a matter of like, I don't think that we should listen if a white supremacist um, organization or government tells us have more patience, you know, it's gonna come, it'll happen. We'll do it eventually. I don't think we should listen to that. But I do think that we need to have patience within our movements to know that we are making progress and keep making the progress that we can make at whatever pace we make because it is not going to be overnight whether we want it to be or not we're not going to wake up tomorrow with it fixed <laughs> jasmine i want to thank you very much i gotta say this so um there's a nod and genuine song that that um if i remember the words right like owe me back like you owe your tax only back like 40 acres to black and later on in the song <laughs> uh, it's like only back like you owe your rent only back like it's money i spent so i want my money like they pay their taxes yep. me back my money so on that note uh, <laughs> we have been talking uh with jasmine pierce on after futures brilliant brilliant activist comedian writer on snl I wish we had more time to kind of get the sense of like, what, where are you going from here? Like the future looks so promising for you, but I just need you to have you on again. And so thank you Absolutely. so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. I'm glad we finally got to connect and have a real discussion. Likewise, thank you. Thanks. After Futures, you've been listening to Yusuf and Jasmine Pierce. Afro Futures is produced by WAER Public Radio with producers Joe Lee and Kevin Kloss. 